Pastor Nate's amazing. Uh, I contacted him last night at about 8 o'clock and said, hey, I know the perfect song to sing before the sermon tomorrow. Uh, Keith Green song, Asleep in the Light. And uh, most people would have said, oh, it's too late. But he came up here and started working on it. And I'm so thankful for it. It's a powerful introduction to uh, the letter of the Lord Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ to the church at Sardis that we look at in Revelation, revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 this morning. I invite you to stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect and precious Word. We'll pray and we'll study God's Word together this morning. I'll remind you that uh, John is writing. He received a revelation from Jesus as he was worshiping on the Lord's Day. Revelation of who Christ is and a revelation of how all things are summed up in Christ and particular letters to these churches we're considering. Revelation chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in, my sight, in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. O Lord, awaken us. To the degree that we are awake, awaken us all the more. O Lord, help us to be awake, to remember the Gospel. And Lord, help us to be people who always keep it. That we would be those who keep the Gospel which means we repent of our sin. And we do it until Christ comes and consummates His glorious kingdom. Lord, help Ashland Avenue this morning to hear what the Spirit of Christ says to this church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, what makes a church alive? There are some easy ways to answer that question. Lots of people, there's a lot of people that want to go and clamber into a particular church. The parking lot is full, the church has a lot of activity, it's involved in all kinds of service, it has a good reputation. And all of those are good things that any church should want if, if they rest on the right foundation. You see, it is possible to have lots of people and full parking lots and activities and service and a good reputation, but for all of it to be a mirage in the sight of God. 
For it not to be built on the right foundation. Think with me for a moment about your child. Most people who have children think, you know, I want my child to have good manners and be a good student with good grades. That's a right thing to want. That's a right thing to desire. But it is possible for a child to exhibit good manners because they know it allows them not to be suspected of things. And it's possible for a child to manipulate people around them with good manners and make it easy for them to cheat. And it's possible that those good manners can provide cover for cheating and the good grades are a result of the cheating. Now, though good manners and good grades are be desired, not built on that foundation. What may be on the outside in that child's life is a good reputation, but it's a mirage. It's not reality. It's a cover for bad character. The same can be true of churches. And it can be true of the Christians who make up those churches. There is possible for there to be a huge difference between name and reputation and reality. It's possible for a church to have a name and reputation based on a full parking lot, lots of people, activity, and service... And yet that church grieves the heart of God. We must always remember that possibility. Even as we celebrate the things that God is doing here. We want it to be real. Now I'll remind you that the formula, the the pathway to speak to these churches is to, with the exception of a couple of them, follow the exact same path. For a couple of them, there's no good things that are said, but there is a a statement of the fact that Jesus is Lord of the church. And why? There's a statement of what's right in the church, what's wrong in the church. Christ gives counsel to the church, and then there's a promise given to the church. That's what we see in our text this morning, except the order shifts a little bit. Because what is wrong in the church at Sardis is far larger than anything that is right. First of all, in verse 1, the first part of verse 1, the Lord of the church. Now, He takes something from the vision given of Christ previously in chapter 1, and He applies a portion of that vision of who Christ is to a particular church because of the need going on in the church. And what it is that the Lord of the church, that this church needs to cling on to, is the fullness of the Spirit. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 1. And the angel of the church, in, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, Sardis was a city whose glory lay in the past. At one time in the 6th century, 
uh, B.C. It was a great city, a capital city, a, a foundational city, the center of the Persian government. But its glory days were long behind it. It was far more or less important at the time of the writing of the New Testament. It was known as an industrial center, a, a meeting place of several Roman roads, but this once great city was now obscure. The only thing to its former greatness that, that was still here was the fact that most of the people who were still here were wealthy. But unlike the other churches, there's no real statement of outward persecution of the church in Sardis. There's no statement of a particular heresy or false teaching going on in the church. There's no organized opposition from uh, Jewish people like it is in some of the churches. None of those things are going on. But the issue in the church at Sardis is though it was once great, it was still living today in the past. It considered itself great, though it now no longer was, and people felt okay because they had enough money. It was an area known for loose living. It was an area known for comfort and luxury. It was not an area where people were wondering where their next meal was going to come from. And that's true of most of the people in this room as well. Commentator George Eldon Ladd says about Sardis, it was marked by spiritual apathy that resulted from softness and love of luxury. See, money makes apathy easy. Because money and resources lull someone into think into thinking, I'm okay. I can take care of myself. What do I need? But notice what he says about who Christ is that he focuses on here. The words of Him who has the seven spirits of God. Now you'll remember that was in Revelation 1.4. It's a reference to the sevenfold, a number of fullness, the sevenfold fullness of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Spirit is what this church needed. It needed to be enlivened by the very Holy Spirit of God. What they were neglecting was the reality of the fullness of the Spirit. And then it says, and of the seven stars. Remember the lampstands were the churches. The stars were either the guardian angel of these churches or perhaps the pastor of these churches. So it's putting together what this church needs is the fullness of the Spirit of God. A.W. Tozer asked a question many years ago, preacher of another generation. He said this, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the vibrant New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everyone would know the difference.
That's something for all of us to reckon with. If the Holy Spirit was withdrawn, would we notice it? You see, there's the possibility of doing all that we do in our own power. And there's the possibility of producing a full building and full parking lots and activity and service and doing it all in our own strength. Now normally, he goes from the statement of the Lord of the church to what's good in the church, what's right in the church, but he doesn't hear. There's too much wrong to go that direction. And so the order is changed, and the next thing we see in the second part of verse 1 is what's wrong in the church, and the statement is direct and it's blunt. You are dead. Look with me at verse 1. The last part. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I know your works. Why does he say that? Well, because if you interviewed the typical person in the church, say, how's your church doing? And the person would say, we're doing great. We hardly have room on Sunday. We, we have all kinds of people who come. We're involved in this. We're doing this. And Jesus says, I know your works. And that it gives you the reputation of being alive. The external success, the numbers, the activity, the prosperity, the offerings, the money convince you that you are alive. He says, but you are dead. This is a statement of nominal Christianity. That is Christianity that looks a particular way on the outside, but it's not the real thing. It's not Spirit-given faith. It's just religious formality. In nominal Christianity, there's a contradiction between the name and reputation and the reality in the sight of God. If we talk about these churches in Revelation, the one that in our context, in our affluent culture, in our culture when their churches are everywhere, that hits close to home. It's this one. It seems that not only the city was saying, oh yeah, we're a great city, Uh, consider who we've been, that the church was in the same situation. I had a friend that was, uh, had a church talking to him. The church had, had been a church that was formerly huge and had great numbers and all these things, but it had dwindled over the years. Conflict in the church. They talked to him about going there. They were praying about it. They decided to go there. And when he was standing in the line shaking hands after he'd already agreed to go there, the typical person that came up to him said, oh, listen, can you believe that you get to pastor this great church? I mean... Look at your age. and I mean, you get to pastor this church. After they got through the handshaking thing, he said, count me out. Count me out. I'm not going to do it. He said the church was enamored with its own past glory. And he knew that was going to keep them from doing what they needed to do in the present. It is so often the case. It is a danger. There is a difference between respecting the past 
and living in the past. Nominal Christianity always has reasons to say why it's okay, but what matters is not what a church says about itself, but what God says about it. And He says to this one that is active and full, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. In other words, you have a lot of things going on, but you are devoid of spiritual power. You can produce the externals without spiritual resources. And let me remind you that Jesus' fiercest rage is always against religious hypocrisy. Always. Had a conversation with one of my kids this week who was doing something that was a complete contradiction to who they say they are. And I said to them, okay, I want you to go up to uh, the Roger Hollins in, at Ashland and I want you to, to say the exact same things to him that you're doing. Well, you wouldn't do that. Why? You wouldn't want him to see that. And so, guess what? You shouldn't be doing it. It's hypocrisy. I said, I have far more respect for the rebel that's an open rebel than the hypocrite. The one who wants a reputation, a name, but in reality they are living as something different. But that danger is there with all of us. But I want you to see how Christ counsels this church, and we see it in verse 2 and the first part of verse 3. Christ counseled to the church, it's this. Wake up, remember, and keep it. Look with me beginning at verse 2. Wake up. By the way, that's not a great translation here. This is a present command. It could be be watchful. Or or perhaps the, the best way to translate this would be sort of a phrase that is caught on today in some circles. Be woke. People use that for be awake about the racial issues around us, but it's really good here. Because to say wake up is point action. That's not what it's saying. It's saying stay awake. Stay awake to what's going on. You are asleep, as Pastor Nate sung so powerfully in the song of Keith Green, in the light. How can you be so dead, the song says, when you are so well fed? Wake up. Be on the watch. Be woke about the reality of who Christ is. But notice what it also says. And strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete, could be translated full, in the sight of my God. Remember then that what you received and heard, keep it and repent. Now, there's, pr- there's three present commands in there. Wake up, remember, and keep it. Now, strengthen and repent are particular point action commands. It's not continual. It's do this. So you're waking up. You're seeing your life in light of Christ and the Gospel again should lead to you being strengthened. You're remembering should lead to you, you're remembering, and it's remembering the Gospel, remembering you were lost and now you're saved, remembering what it's like when you came to faith in Christ, remember what it's like to know the glory of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Not this 
apathy and this sleepiness you're into. You've woken up. You're being strengthened because you're remembering the power of the gospel. Therefore, you're intent on keeping or grasping the gospel. And that means that you're always repenting of sin and turning back to Christ. Keeping the gospel again. Because before we are glorified with Christ for all eternity, we are all in this struggle with the flesh and struggle with sin. Do you see what's going on here? Wake up! The only way for you to be strengthened is wake up! It's impossible for you to get your body stronger as you sleep on the couch. Let's say you had a surgery. I had a total knee replacement. And after that, they came in to do the rehab the very first day. And I said, no, listen, I'm sleepy. Forget about the rehab. Three weeks in, I'm still sleepy. Forget about the rehab. Guess what? The knee don't work. Atrophy. The only way for you to get stronger is to wake up. The same is true spiritually. You can't do Christianity on autopilot. You have to fight to see the world in light of the gospel. To determine to know nothing among anyone but Christ and Him crucified. And only in that battle can you be strengthened because you are remembering the gospel, not assuming it or taking it for granted. Therefore, you can keep it as you live your life, which means you see sin. If you don't remember it, if you don't keep it, you sin and you don't even see it as sin. Apathy leads to more sin and further rebellion. The only way for you to reverse your spiritual atrophy is to wake up, to be strengthened, to remember, to have your faith and hope and eyes opened to who you were apart from Christ and to repent the other side of keeping the gospel. Now, this is particularly powerful to the church at Sardis. Because the church at Sardis, or the, the city of Sardis, I mean, was high elevation. It had fortified walls, and there was no way to get in the city, so it was impenetrable unless, unless the watchmen don't do their job. Unless the watchmen sleep. And two times in history, the watchmen had slept. Somebody scaled the tower and penetrated the city. So when he says, wake up! And he applies that to their spiritual lives in the church, everybody knows the historical reality in the city. They know what happens when you don't wake up. By the way, this remembering is a spiritual discipline. It's one we're not very good at today. Today we want everything instant, everything immediate. All that matters to us is this moment. We forget history. We act like uh, the world started the day we were born. And we just sort of go on and we have historical amnesia. And yet this failure to remember opens the door to spiritual apathy because we don't know why things matter. 
See, the reason he can appeal to this example of what happened in the city is there's a memory of that in the community. Far more important that we remember who we are apart from Christ. That we fight to remember that our challenges on this day include the Gospel. So the good news in the life of the believer always overshadows the bad news. And then he gives a warning in the second part of verse 3. Look with me there. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. By the way, that's usually language for the second coming. Matthew 24, 43, Luke 12, 39, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, 2 Peter 3, 10. But here it's not. But it's like that. You will, know, you will not know at what hour I will come against you. It's a warning about a historical act of the judgment of God on a presumptuous church. You will not know. It will come unexpected if you will not wake up. Notice the terrifying words, I will come against you. God rightly makes us tremble. But in Christ... We tremble knowing that all of His sovereign power and authority is used for us. But if we will not heed His words, this is a promised judgment for this presumptuous church. Presumption is always dangerous. Take your wife for granted. Take your husband for granted. Take your friends for granted. And that's one thing, but take God for granted? By the way, Living in apathy, taking things for granted, does not produce peace, it produces greater stress. If I show you somebody who lives with an attitude of entitlement, somebody who has an apathy about the things that matter most, I will show you somebody eaten up with stress and has situations happen that aren't crisis that they treat like crisis. It's when you are woke to God and the Gospel that there gets to be perspective in your life. We are never to take God or our faith or our church family for granted. We are always to be waking up, being strengthened, remembering the Gospel, keeping it, and repenting of sin. Only now can he in verse 4 say what is right in the church. Here's what's right in the church. A faithful remnant. Look with me at verse 4. Yet... By the way, it's a strong word of contrast here. It could be translated, but. Yet, you still have a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white. Meaning, in victory, in purity, in triumph because of Christ. For they are worthy. Now, it doesn't mean that they made themselves worthy by their works. It means that they are made worthy by their faith in Christ. They are worthy by grace, and they do not forget the grace. Now, this is important because even though this church is full of apathy and presumption, trusting in the externals, God cares for it. And He says an important word. There are a few in Sardis. Look to them. 
It's not too late, he says. This church can be reclaimed. Look to the few who hold the truth of the Gospel. By the way, when it says, and who have not soiled their garments, it, it is implying that the, the, the ease and the apathy and the comfortable living was also a loose living that was marked by all kinds of sexual immorality. And by the way, when you're, when you're living in this apathy, when you're living for a reputation instead of reality, sexual immorality doesn't seem like a big deal as long as you can keep it secret. And oh, is this a word for churches where churches have their spiritual vitality zapped because of the raging problem with internet pornography that is unrepented of in the church. Hear it. Hear it as a warning. But I also want to make another point. If you've got a remnant, you've got hope. If you've got people you can look to who really have a vibrant faith, who, who look to Jesus, who trust in Him, there's hope. <clears throat> I've been here at Ashland 14 years. Many of you, most of you probably don't know that there was a little period in the church prior to that that was a very difficult time. First Sunday I was here, we had 235 people. You can see we have quite a few more than that today. And people said, you know, how, what did you do? How did you help Ashland bounce back? How did it come back? Wrong question. Not what did I do? It was the fact there was a faithful remnant here who loved Jesus and loved their church and they weren't going to settle for anything other than moving on by faith in ministry. Now, if you were here at Ashland before I got here, stand up. Alright, you can sit down. Listen, listen. That is applause for the grace of God in Jesus Christ that kept a faithful people who went through difficult times so now that you and I can be a part of what God is doing here now. You're struggling? Get by somebody faithful. Somebody who believes the power of the Gospel. Somebody who's been through tough times. The power of someone who believes in the power of God. The power of someone who believes that we can get through the difficult times we face. What's right in this church was a faithful remnant. And he always offers a promise to the church. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. The one who conquers. Some translation, the one who overcomes. The one who is a conqueror. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. That's garments of victory and purity because of Christ. And I will never blot His name out of the book of life. I will confess His name before my Father and before the angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is what the Spirit of Christ says to the churches. What is the promise to the church? Assurance. 
It's so important because those who stand boldly for Christ, those who wake up from the apathy may be rejected. They may be isolated. They may be marginalized. In some of the cities, their names may be removed from the registry as a faithful citizen and they are treated as a criminal in the city. But the message is this. Your name may be Removed from a registry in this life of what somebody says is somebody that is to be recognized as in good standing. But that's not the issue. If you are in Christ and faithful to Him and awake to the Gospel, your name will never be removed from the book of life, the registry of heaven. That is glorious and powerful. That sustains us in the midst of all that we face. What a promise of assurance that God has no eraser for His people. And did you notice what it also said? I, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. The word confess there is a legal word. It's a courtroom word. This is Jesus saying, I will speak your name in heaven and your pardon is as sure as my voice claiming you in heaven. I will confess His name. It's the flip side of Matthew 10, 32, Luke 12, 8, which says, confess me before men and I will confess you before my Father in heaven. Now he says, I will confess you if you're mine before my Father in heaven. Therefore, your name is in the book and can never be erased. The promise of sovereign assurance in Christ. How can we be apathetic about that? See, the only way nominalism can creep in, the only way apathy can be there is if we are not woke to what the Gospel really is. Who God is and what He has done for us. It's only when we drift into self-focus that we are asleep about the things that matter most. And therefore, things that matter less rise in importance And we're full of anxiety. Commentator William Barclay says about Sardis, Sardis was a city of peace. Not the peace won through battle, but the peace of the man whose dreams are dead and whose mind is asleep. It is the peace of lethargy and evasion. That's a dangerous peace. By the way, that seeming peace is never peace within one's heart and mind. Because it's only those who confess things to the Father in heaven that have what Paul says is the peace of God that rules their hearts and minds. When you have that seeming peace, as though you're okay in and of yourself, trusting in your own resources, in your heart and mind, you're... You have a war, a battle. You're eaten up with anxiety. Understand what he's saying here. What matters is not the name and the reputation of a church or a Christian, but the reality of that church or that believer before God. 
You see, what we most often worry about is our name and reputation before men. Fear of man is always the result of taking God for granted. Not remembering God, forgetting God, forgetting the Gospel. Because when we see them in light of God in the Gospel, man doesn't look so big. But when we take God for granted, man looks big. And we're driven by the fear of man and we think that what matters most is our name and reputation before man. But it's not. We're always to be in recovery mode, re- revival mode, trying to, trying to wake up our heart and mind about the truth of the Gospel. Only when we get awake, only when we get animated by the Gospel can we be strengthened by the Gospel. As we fight to keep remembering the Gospel. And then we want to keep it. In other words, walk in line with it, which means we can't walk in line with sin, so we repent. And to do that, Find somebody who really believes it. Not somebody perfect, for there are none. But somebody in all of their stumbling mistakes really believes the Gospel. They are awake to it. Find somebody like that. Get around them. Find others. Find a church like that. And if you can't find others, find one. Find somebody. It's a gift of the grace of God. And the only judgment that matters for eternity is God's. So yeah, we want a lot of people and we want the parking lot full and we want to serve and we want to have a lot going on and we want a good reputation. But if it's not built on the foundation of the Gospel, it's a mirage. And if it, but if it is, glory be to God. Let's pray.